This lecture is really a survey, a backstory to um, a trend in the cognitive neurosciences over the past decade or so, which is a move towards understanding the brain as a, a statistical organ, a predictive processing machine. Uh, so what I want to do is just cast for you the main elements of the backstory as would be articulated in the first half of a talk by a physicist and in the second half of the talk by a neuroscientist. And I'm doing that because I, I am aware that I'm speaking to a very eclectic and possibly informed, more informed than usual audience. So I will have equations in case you're worried it's going to be too backstory-ish. Um, so here's the, the overview of the talk. I'm going to uh, just discuss the properties that systems must possess if they exist. And by exist, I mean show some form of existential uh, invariance of the sort we uh, associate with living systems. And I'm going to illustrate uh, and demystify some of those principles uh, using numerical analysis simulations of a primordial soup, just to evolve a little creature and ask some questions about the nature of its behavior and how we can understand that behavior. I'm then going to turn to the point of view of a neuroscientist, and I'm going to tell exactly the same story, but this time as a neurobiologist. I'm talking about the anatomy of inference, uh, bringing in predictive coding implementations of these principles, and how they might be implemented by neural networks. And then finally, if we have time, and I'm going to get a helpful hurry-up sign from my host <laughs> if we run out of time, um, I'm going to justify the use of the quirky title. I, uh, I am, therefore, I think, or I think, therefore, I am, whichever you prefer. Um, so we're going to make uh, the final move, which is really um, rehearsing the same principles, but now under a prior belief that I am the sort of creature that exists and therefore must conform to these principles. And we'll conclude with simulations of visual foraging and um, um, epistemic affordance. So let's start. I'm going to start with a question posed by Schrodinger. How can the events in space and time which take place within the spatial boundary of a living organism be accounted for by physics and chemistry? I'm not going to answer that question clearly, but we'll pick up on the notion of a spatial boundary. And just note that in order to talk about anything, you need to be able to demarcate or distinguish, disambiguate the thing from something else or nothing. And that really is the role of the boundary that separates the thing from the non-thing. Um, and Schrodinger would be the first person to acknowledge that this boundary was in and of itself a probabilistic, stochastic quantity. Uh, so I'm going to take that boundary to be a Markov blanket. So at this point, I normally ask, can you put your, ha put your hand up if you know what a Markov blanket is? Good. Can you tell your friends what a Markov blanket is? <laughs> no. <laughs> you could have been clever and used the excuse that you haven't got the microphone for the recording, but I think it's just shyness. Anyway, what he would have told you, what he would have said, was that, well, let's take this graphic here. Let's assume that this is a description of some little universe, and all these uh, circles here denote states uh, of any abstract sort, and the edges, the arrows, denote a an influence of one state or over another state. And let's just take some internal states of interest. And the Markov blanket comprises those other states that in a statistical sense insulate, blanket, 
render insular the internal states from the external states. And by that I mean that if I wanted to predict the internal state based upon the rest of the universe, I would only ever need to know these blanket states. And technically they're defined in terms of the parents, the children, and the parents of the children of the internal states of interest. So a very simple definition just in terms of conditional dependencies or influences or some adjacency matrix on this graph that provides a set of states that separates internal from external. Now, only about 25% of you put your hand up and I said, what is a Markov blanket? In fact, you do all know what a Markov blanket is. So any of you that have worked with um, time series or hidden uh, Markov models or Markovian processes have implicitly been using the concept and know the concept of a Markov blanket. So if you just think of um, these states being states of the universe in time, then the Markov blanket is just the present moment in the sense that everything I need to know about the past that informs the future under a Markovian assumption is in the present. So the present provides a Markov blanket that statistically separates the past from the future. So that's all that this means. All that we're doing here is generalizing that notion to any arbitrary set of states that can be articulated in terms of their dependencies and influences in this form here. I'm going to make another distinction which will become important later on. Um, and I'm going to make a bipartition of this set of states here into sensory states that are not influenced by internal states and active states that are not influenced by uh, external states. Um, and just to motivate that distinction, what I'm going to invite you to do is just to think about these conditional dependencies, this causal statistical architecture in the context of things that we all uh, know and love and sometimes study. So these blanket states comprise the active and sensory states that separate external from internal states. And what I've done here is just rewrite that graphic, that dependency graph, um, in a form that, you, that as a neuroscientist you recognize, as a cellular biologist you recognize, where we can associate the internal states with every state of the brain that I need to list in order to say this is the state of the brain at the moment, all the synaptic efficacies and activities um, and connection strengths. The active states could be the states of all my muscles, my autonomic reflexes, my um, uh, um, motor system that cause changes in the external states that produce sensory impressions upon my sensory states, my sensory epithelium that subsequently change my internal states to induce changes in action and so the cycle unfolds. And I use the word cycle deliberately here because what we have is just a statistical statement of some form of action perception or perception action cycle. Exactly the same dependency structure can be found um, at the cellular level. So we have all the intracellular states um, that could constitute uh, a little um, uh, cell here. Uh, we can associate, say, the active states with the actin filaments that support and provide motility to the surface or sensory states of a cell uh, with receptors that are in receipt of influences from the external milieu that in turn affect the internal states, that affect the cell motility. And this structure just rests upon the absence of two conditional dependencies that define the active and the internal states. And absence of an influence of internal states on the sensory states, 
and an absence of the influence of the external states on the active states. And that's it. That's all you need to define something that can be separated from something else. So what I'm going to do now is to ask you just to forget about the Markov blanket for a moment. What we're going to do is just quickly run through um, the dynamics of stuff that exists. And then what we're going to do is to put the Markov blanket back in play and see what interpretations follow from the existence of a Markov blanket under more generic principles of self-organization. Um, so what I've cartooned here is a state space. Uh, there's two states here. And we have some system, say me. And I'm in one state at any one particular time. And I trace out a trajectory or a path through my state or my face uh, space here. And as time unfolds, I habitually revisit or systematically revisit um, neighborhoods of states that I have been in before. And so you can think of this, say, for example, I'm getting up in the morning, I'm having my cup of coffee, I do my emails, I do the morning work, I have lunch, and so on. This could be my daily cycle. Or it could be my cardiac cycle, with systole and diastole, uh, as I circulate um, around this attracting set, this attracting manifold, crucially returning to the same state of being periodically, in a very itinerant way. This is an enormously complicated, very high-dimensional attracting set. But it must exist in the sense that I exist, in the sense that I have measurable states that I keep on returning to define the sort of system or the thing that I am. Uh, technically, this would be a pullback or a random dynamical attractor. I'm just going to refer to it as a set of attracting states uh, that must be there if something exists. Now, the reason I'm going on about that is that there's a lot of machinery which we, some of us will know and love that is apt for describing some of the fundamental dynamics that must be in play if this attracting set is in, in play. Uh, so here I've just written down the Langevin uh, description of this uh, system in terms of motion, uh, which is equal to flow, dependent upon states, plus some random fluctuations, omega. I can describe not just the flow on this attracting set, but interpret this flow in terms of the probability that I would be in this state if I was sampled at random at a random time in terms of a probability density. And I'm going to associate that probability density with the, the sorts of states that I'm in when I have attained or settled down to my attracting set when I am in non-equilibrium steady state. And if I do that, that means that this probability, the probability of being in a particular state given me, is uh, described by the density dynamics, where to change the probability of my states uh, given me. And I can write that down using the Fokker-Planck equation, the master equation, the Kolmogorov's forward equation, whatever you want to describe this. Interestingly, uh, it will transpire also to be the Schrodinger wave equation. Uh, and I can write it down as a function of the amplitude of the random fluctuations um, and the gradients um, of this and the flow and the probability distribution. If you don't know what this means, don't worry about it. It's just something that it has to apply if this attracting set or non-equilibrium steady state exists. The key thing about it is that I know that once I settle down, this is zero. And if this is zero, that now allows me to write down the flow as a function of the, the gradients of the log probabilities of states of being that I am typically in. 
given the amplitude of the random fluctuations and a solenoidal uh, component here, Q, which is an anti-symmetric matrix. So this is going to be quite crucial. It's basically, if I exist, my dynamics, my flow, must satisfy this equation, and this equation is a functional or a function of a log probability, which is just the sorts of states that characterize me. Um, for those of you who don't know uh, this formalism, I'll just very quickly go through in a, mo in a more intuitive uh, fashion. Imagine that I place a drop of ink in a cup of water, and due to the random thermal fluctuations, the molecules of that ink will disperse themselves throughout the solvent. So I would expect to see, for a system that wasn't going to attain any form of steady state equilibrium or otherwise, the ink diffuse until the concentration is uniform everywhere in the solvent. That is not the characteristic uh, of the systems that are interesting us. What we are talking about are systems that do this. I drop the water in, and then it seems to, the oil ink, and it seems to gather itself up. So it attains this non-equilibrium self-assembly as if the molecules were flowing up probability gradients. It's like a reverse diffusion. And it is exactly that particular dynamics that that solution to the Fokker-Planck uh, equation describes. So if we associate the concentration of the ink molecules with um, the probability distribution, then what we're saying is we can understand these two components of the flow as basically this gradient flow climbing up probability or concentration gradients and this solenoidal um, or divergence-free uh, flow as flowing around the isocontours here. And it's in particular this gradient flow that I want to drill down on. It is there in order to exactly balance the dispersion of the random fluctuations. So I'm not talking about detailed balance, I'm talking about something much more general, that if I have attained non-equilibrium steady state and I exist in that sense, then it must be that on average my flow is exactly countering the dispersion of my non-equilibrium steady state probability distribution. So that's good. Um, is it interesting? It is very interesting um, as a, um, if you like, the, the godfather of most of physics. So that solution, and in particular the uh, Fokker-Planck equation, uh, underwrites, or you can coerce it to underwrite classical mechanics and quantum mechanics. Uh, so, for example, we can set the amplitude of those random fluctuations to zero, and what falls out of that solenoidal flow, because the gamma part, the gradient flow, has gone away, is just um, classical Lagrangian uh, mechanics and Newtonian laws. We can go to the other end of the scale and ignore the solenoidal bits and just focus on the random fluctuation and all the interesting behaviours that one gets uh, from random fluctuations that do not, cannot see these probability gradients. They just pass through potential barriers, for example. And then what we get from that is basically um, a, uh, a formulation that ends up with things like the fluctuation theorem, fluctuation dissipation theorem, and stochastical for ensemble statistical mechanics. Um, we can just look at the square root, complex square root of that um, non-equilibrium state density and treat that as a wave function. And then the Fokker-Planck equation writes itself as a, uh, as a Schrodinger equation. What we're going to do, though, is um, consider another sort of mechanics that 
rests explicitly on the Markov blanket. So that's the move here. We're just taking standard physics and saying, what would it look like if there was always a Markov blanket there? And that brings some interesting things to the table. Uh, first of all, it means that there are two sets of dynamics, dynamics uh, 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 that pertain to the internal states and the active states that look as if they're doing gradient flow, so they have a purpose. Uh, and furthermore, we're go going to interpret a bound on the thing that they are flowing on in terms of a variation free energy. So that's the basic story. I'm just foreshadowing or foregrounding uh, that story as an extension that is entirely consistent with and complementary to uh, things that we have been taught at school. So that's our gradient flow, the solution to the uh, Volker Planck equation. Um, and this is the same solution, but now just written down in terms of the states of a particle, where I'm assuming that a particle comprises the internal states and its Markov blanket that has active and sensory states. And I'm focusing on the active states here. And because of those independences, I, am only, I only need to concentrate on the probability of the blanket states, the sensory and active states. So this is the solution to this non-equilibrium steady state that must be there describing the flow of internal and active states. And the interesting thing here is that they both look as if they're trying to optimize or maximize the same quantity. And that's the, log the gradient of the log probability of the blanket states given the system me in question. And the story is going to be basically that we can look at the, um, this mechanics as perception and the flow of active states uh, in terms of action. And what licenses me to say that? Well, just the form of that equation uh, makes a lot of sense from the point of view of many, many different perspectives in psychology and the life sciences. So I'll just briefly run through a few of them, just, and you will know this stuff, or at least one or two of these things, uh, just, just so you can see how I've joined the dots uh, from the point of view of motivating the central importance of this uh, log probability up here. So we've just said, that these describe attracting states. So the greater the probability of being in any attracting state or blanket state here uh, means those are the sorts of states that I'm attracted to that I will be typically found in. Basically, they can be construed as having value for me, the things that I aspire to or that attract me. And what we're saying is basically that both perception and action are in the game of maximizing value. And on that reading, we can spin out things like reinforcement learning, optimal control theory, and indeed if we're doing economics, it could even be expected utility theory. That's nice because the negative of this value is known as self-information and information theory. Uh, Tribers call it surprisal. I'm just going to refer to it as surprise. It's just the improbability, the negative log probability of being in some state. Uh, incidentally, that's the quantity that's going to be upper bounded by the free energy. So I'm going to use free energy synonymously, really, with uh, this surprisal or surprise. So what this says is that systems that possess a Markov blanket and have attained non-equilibrium steady state are basically trying to get put an upper bound on surprise. And from that, we can understand things like the Infamax principle, principles of minimum redundancy, and indeed the variational free energy principle that we're going to be talking about. That's nice because this thing here, when taken uh, in expectation or the average of this over time or over the path 
is entropy. So what we're saying is that this dual minimization of this quantity here, this surprisal, is just a statement of self-organization. It's putting an upper bound on the dispersion or the entropy of the disorder of me. Um, and that's how you might understand it as a physicist or from the point of view of synergetics. Of course, if you're a physiologist, it's just a statement of homeostasis. That's all we're saying. We're just saying that systems that persevere, endure in a changing world are those that keep their physiological states within viable bounds. They gather themselves up and place bounds upon that dispersion. The final interpretation, which is the one that I want to um, leverage, um, is from the point of view of a statistician, this probability here is just the probability of some sensory or blanket data conditioned now not upon me, but if I treat me as a model of those data, this now becomes something called model evidence or marginal likelihood. And it is the holy grail in terms of the quantity that you want to optimize when doing Bayesian inference. And if we take that interpretation, then we, what we are saying is that this is equivalent to saying that we can understand, say, the brain did this as a Bayesian brain. We can understand that in terms of evidence accumulation and indeed predictive coding. Uh, and that's the sort of story that I'm going to um, try and tell you uh, um, for the remainder of the talk. Before I do so, that I, I promise you that I'll try and demystify some of the behavior uh, entailed by that um, formulation of non-equilibrium steady state using simulations. So here are the simulations. What I've done here is take a hundred and so little macromolecules, synthetic macromolecules, equip them with autonomous dynamics, like, like a little, creating a little active soup or active matter, and then couple them with strong and weak uh, forces, strong repulsive forces that depend upon the spatial distance and weak electrochemical uh, coupling here, and just let them self-organize and fall, settle down onto their attracting set. And once I've done that, I've created a little universe where, crucially, I know all those dependencies, and I know all of the um, dependencies that would otherwise define, or that would define the Markov blanket. So I can now go in there and search for the Markov blanket and ask, is there a little creature living in the middle of this little soup? And if I identify this, the eight most connected states, I can then, using the dependencies encoded by the adjacency matrix, so I find the parents, the children, and the parents of the children, and identify this little synthetic creature with its internal states encoded in blue, the active states surrounding it encoded in red that support the sensory states of magenta that um, then uh, separate the internal states from the external states in cyan. And it sits there happily wiggling away, wagging its tail, could be like a little uh, cilium uh, here. Now I've simulated that um, thing that has a Markov blanket, I can now ask, well, is that self, uh, that Bayesian interpretation of the dynamics that must be there, given it's now settled down to non-equilibrium steady state, is that a viable description of the behavior of this little synthetic creature? So in other words, are there any attributes or states of the int uh, um, configurations of internal states that in some sense model or predict the states on the outside. Um, and it's very simple to show that, yes, indeed, that has to be the case, and it is the case. So here's a sort of numerical example of that. What I've done here is just taken a mixture of time-lagged internal electrochemical states 
and ask what mixture best predicts some mixture or some motion, physical motion, of the external states. And these are the internal states, and here in the solid line is the prediction, and the dotted line is the actual velocity of these external states. So if you're a, you're a scientist, you can imagine this is a, a simulated visual motion experiment. You know, are there any internal electrochemical fluctuations that predict or are predicted by changes in visual motion out there that I cannot access directly, but I can do through my uh, sensory epithelia in my retina? And you can see that not only is there a correlation, but you can actually pick up events and even see them in terms of the internal fluctuations here. It's highlighted by uh, the white arrow. The, the reason I've shown this example is if you look closely, you can see that the internal states actually predate this rapid expulsion of this external state, a little bit like a solar flare, and then it's pulled back again. Uh, so the internal states are not really seeing the external states. It looks as if they may also cause, in terms of temporal precedence, the external states that may be causing the internal states. So the question is, what's causing what? Well, let me ask a question. Let me pose that as a question. Are the internal states causing the external states, or the external states causing the internal states? What? It is very much a chicken and egg. Which, which side do you want to come down on? <laughs> the very fact you're teasing me with a flippant answer means you know the right answer, which of course neither. It, it's, um, this, is, this is just an instance um, of, of uh, what Huygens uh, noted uh, centuries ago of generalized synchronization or chaos or generalized synchrony. So this is the story where you have old-fashioned clocks that are suspended from the same wall or the same beam, and inevitably their attracting set requires them to be on the same synchronization manifold, so they will eventually come to swing in synchrony, inevitably. And that's all that we're seeing here. We're just seeing a completely symmetrical synchronization of dynamics in virtue of them, both the outside and the inside, being conditioned upon the Markov blanket. It can be no other way. Um, which is a, an interesting picture. So, in fact, this is a picture that he actually drew of his two uh, clocks uh, with the beam here. So, from our point of view, one clock would be the internal states, these could be the external states, and the beam is the, uh, constituting the blanket states. Uh, and one interesting aspect of this is it shows you the symmetry of the mathematical argument here. So, we, I have had an interesting conversation this afternoon uh, what this symmetry means. And what it means is if you subscribe to the view, that the dynamics here are all about inferring what's going on over here, then the converse has to be true. That means that the environment is trying to infer and to learn about you as much as you are trying to learn and infer about the environment. And our conversation went right through to evolution and eco-niche construction. So it's not a silly view, and it's certainly a mathematical truism. Anyway, so that's all the heavy lifting. That's all the hard part done. Um, just to summarize what we said so far, the existence of a Markov blanket necessarily implies a partition of states into internal states, their blanket, sensory and active states, and external or hidden states hidden behind the blanket. And because active states change, but are not changed by external states, they minimize the entropy of the internal states and their blanket, and this means that action will appear to maintain the structural and functional integrity of the blanket. And some people have written about that in terms of autopoiesis or self-assembly, 
um, um, and the like. Internal states appear to infer the hidden causes of sensory states by maximizing Bayesian model evidence and influence those cause, causes through action. And I'm going to refer to that as active inference. So just different takes or glosses on something that um, is necessarily there if you exist and you have a Markov blanket. Um, oh, I've forgotten about this. This is something that uh, one of my um, visiting research fellows sent me, uh, not last weekend, the weekend before. So for those of you who think the Markov blanket is some abstract uh, mathematical <laughs> constant, it is not. You can buy them in America. So this is, this is Francis' little baby, Kira, two, two months and two weeks old now. And this is what his wife bought him. So that's actually Markov, circa 1858, I think, keeping her states warm as she makes her, her inferences. Anyway, um, so as promised, what I'm going to do now is just rehearse, but using a different rhetoric the same story as if I were uh, giving um, a, a lecture uh, or talking to neuroscientists. And I'm going to now say, well, what this means or what it would look like is that things that have brains will appear to be little constructive organs, statistical organs, that will all be always appear to trying to infer, predict, model what's going on beyond their sensorium. Um, and this is beautifully illustrated by this um, yeah, uh, 16th century oil painter who was known for painting still lives that when viewed from another perspective have a very different interpretation. You immediately have a very different hypothesis about what caused that particular pattern of sensory input. So if you now see a face there where you didn't before, the key thing is, you made that. That face was on the inside. So the argument here, in contrast to the sort of 20th century uh, view of sexual synthesis, and in particular some visual inference, is that it is not an outside-in process. It is not a, a series of clever filters or extraction devices. It's very much an inside-out process, that you have a hypothesis that's in there, and you submit that hypothesis to the sensory evidence and then reject or accept that hypothesis if you can predict what's going on. That's the basic idea. Um, it's a sort of strange inversion of a Dennett-like uh, sort of uh, 20th century thinking about perception. So it's a much more constructivist one uh, that speaks to this sort of circular causality that was seen from the physical perspective. So this idea is not new. You can trace it back to the students of Plato. So here are some of my favorite uh, intellectual architects of, of this style of thinking, um, probably best articulated by Helmholtz. So for example, objects are always imagined as being present in the field of vision, as would have to be there in order to produce the same impression on the nervous mechanism. So again, what he's saying is you have to have the hypothesis, the model, the internal dynamics that would be able to predict what I would see if that was actually out there. Otherwise, you can't perceive it. And this, of course, is very closely related uh, to Richard Gregory's notion of perception as hypothesis testing, that literally we palpate the world, and we'll see an example of this in the final slide, with our eyes, we visually palpate the world to garner, gather evidence that confirms or disconfirms our beliefs about what's out there causing our sensory impressions. And these ideas have been taken and used to great effect by people in machine learning, Jeffrey Hinton and Peter Diane, uh, who came up with the Helmholtz machine and uh, borrowed the notion of variational uh, Bayes or variational free energy minimization developed by Richard Feynman, quantum mechanics, um, 
in the setting of a sort of Bayesian uh, 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 formulation of probability theory to um, use these ideas uh, that are still being used in, in various incarnations, for example, variational autoencoders in deep learning, uh, to great effect in terms of inferring on classifying and recognizing. Um, let's go back to Helmholtz and the notion of, um, the, the notion of an impression um, on the nervous system. So for us, that's this, basically this sort of um, sensory impression on our sensory blanket or our sensory veil. So if this inference perspective is right, what this means is that we have to explain how our brains can take these sensory impressions and from them derive an explanation as to what caused them. So what's behind, what's hidden behind uh, this sensory blanket? Um, and of course the answer, we've already got the answer, it's just the solution to the Fokker-Planck equation. So what would that look like if you were a neuroscientist? Well, I've actually written it down in a way that you'd recognize if you were an engineer doing time series analysis here. So what I've done is written down this gradient flow uh, that we've, we've established as the solution to the, um, the non-equilibrium steady state. Uh, I've just swapped out the log probability with this free energy bound on the log probability, but uh, we don't need to worry about that at the moment. So now we're doing um, a gradient flow on variation free energy. And I've just rewritten these two gradient and solenoidal components in terms of a divergence-free update where mu now stands in for the internal states. And I've rewritten the free energy here in terms of prediction error weighted by their precision or the square prediction error weighted by their inverse variance or prediction here. Now, the reason I've done that is that that is a Kalman filter um, where the uh, precision now plays the role of a Kalman gain. And the way that these things work is that they gather evidence to infer the hidden states of the causes of sense data um, based upon a prediction given what they believe, their, uh, so their expectations. So let's take mu now the internal states to encode a belief, namely the expectation about what will happen next. So this is a derivative operator, so uh, describing the change in the uh, states. Um, and an update term based upon a prediction error. Now, what is a prediction error? Well, let's just say we have this sensory impression here, this shadow, and we have this hypothesis encoded by our internal expectations, say neural activity, that it was caused by a howling dog. And if I had a, a model or a generative mapping between my expectation of the causes and the sensory consequences of that cause, say G to generate the consequences from the causes, I could simply compare my predictions with what I'm actually sensing to generate a prediction error. And that means that we can understand this gradient flow that must be there in terms of updating my expectations to minimize prediction error. And if I can do that successfully, I always then have an adequate explanation for my sensorial. Crucially, it doesn't actually have to be the correct explanation. So it might not be a dog. But I will never know that. And I never need to know that, provided I can always keep my prediction error. So my explanation for the world is perfectly or sufficiently good, provided I can always get that prediction error, precision-weighted prediction error, minimize or upper-bounded, or minimize the, um, the generalization of that, which is this variational free energy that itself is abound upon this surprise or self-information. Um, so that's the basic idea. 
It's nice because it provides a very simple perspective on the um, intimate relationship between action and perception. If everything is in the game of minimizing prediction error, then there are, we have um, a nice way of understanding the two complementary ways in which we can do that. First of all, we can change our predictions to make them more like the sensory impressions, and we can think of that as belief updating in the brain to improve our predictions, to minimize the prediction error, namely perception by changing predictions. But there's another way of doing it. We can make the sensations that we sample more like our predictions. So we can actually act upon the world to go and literally palpate it in a way that selectively samples those sensory outcomes that we predicted a priori. And it turns out that that looks exactly like classical reflex arcs, both in motor control theory and also uh, in, in terms of autonomic reflexes. Basically, a servo that is provided with an, like a thermostat, that's provided with a prediction, its set point, and then all the peripheral machinery, the action, is just in the service of changing the, the world, bring the temperature back down to the set point, just minimizing that precision-weighted prediction error. And that's basically what I'm going to try and illustrate um, uh, in the final few slides. Um, first of all, just to say, if this is going to work, then we have to make realistic predictions of our sensory impressions. And clearly, the sorts of impressions that we are subject to are deeply structured, very dynamic, which means that our generative models that are used to generate these predictions, to form the prediction error, are going to have to be, in turn, deeply structured, basically deep models, but also dynamic. There are going to be deep dynamic generative models. Um, and clearly, that's nice to hear if you're a neurobiologist, because that's exactly how uh, the brain is organized. Certainly, uh, uh, it hits you in the face if you look at the visual system. So I've just cartooned that here. So we have these two hypotheses or causes, if we wanted to predict some retinal sensory data here. You know, what am I looking at and where am I palpating it? And I put these two causes together and I cascade them down, ultimately to make um, some predictions about the sensory flow that would actually be sampled if these explanations were correct. So here is a generative process, these causes cascading down here to produce sensory states of the, of the Markov blanket, plus the random fluctuations at each point. So what would an inference machine, what would self-organization at non-equilibrium state look like based upon this architecture? Well, it would just have the form of our gradient flow. And when I write that down and swap out the way in which these sensory states were generated um, with the prediction errors and the predictions or expectations here, what we get is a message passing scheme that looks very much like what we see in the real brain. So the random fluctuations have now been replaced by prediction errors um, and the causes um, or external states have been uh, replaced by expectations about those hidden states and they still cascade down but they do so via the prediction errors that crucially now are returned back up to update and inform the expectations using this gradient flow or Kalman filter or predictive coding equation here. So the picture that falls out for free from that gradient flow interpretation of non-equilibrium self-organization to steady state is exactly what we see in the brain. This counter stream of ascending prediction errors that induce belief updating or Bayesian belief updating to provide better explanations that can be returned by descending predictions 
to prediction error cells so that they are self-cancelling through this recurrent message passing that is hierarchically uh, composed or arranged. Um, here's a quick example um, for the in the visual system just to sort of put action back into, into the story. Um, so imagine we have some visual retinal information coming in here, gets the lateral geniculate uh, nucleus. Um, it's in receipt of top-down predictions from the visual cortex, and they are partially good, but not completely, so there's a prediction error that gets passed up as the newsworthy information that has yet to be explained that excites changes in the expectations in the visual cortex. But crucially, these expectations are themselves being predicted by a higher level, so there's a secondary prediction error, and that's passed up, and so on and so on, to increasingly hierarchical depth until you've minimized prediction error at all levels in the hierarchy, and you have a, a set of expectations at different levels of coarse graining in space and in time that provides uh, an account of your sensorium at multiple levels of abstraction. I've also put in here there's another sort of sensory information from the sensory states of the Markov blanket, the proprioceptive input, the status of my muscles, my oculomotor system. Now, these could come in, they could be um, in receipt of top-down predictions, and I could change my mind about where I'm looking. But here's where the reflex comes in, this is where action comes in. There's another way in which these particular prediction errors can be minimized, and that's if they couple straight back to the outside world through the active states. So all that means is, if I register there's a difference between my sensed um, stretch of my muscle and my predictive stretch of the muscle, then I will contract or relax the muscle until the sensations match the predictions. So what I've just described is a classic, thank you, a classical reflex arc. Um, and we can use that to simulate um, all sorts of things. I'll just give you one example really um, to illustrate the difference between this example and the interesting thing which justifies the title of this talk in the last uh, couple of minutes. Um, we've just used that hill climbing equation um, um, with a particular generative model to emulate or simulate slow pursuit tracking. I won't go into the maths, in fact I can't because there's a font substitution error here, you don't need to know about it, it's a simple uh, new Newtonian um, mechanics that describe an interesting model where I believe that the same things that pull a target around are also pulling my eyeball. So we've written into this particular simulated uh, subject or synthetic agent, the prior belief in their generative model that, that, that causes predictions of both what they see and what they feel from their eye movements. The belief that there's some fictive invisible point of attraction out there that is pulling a target around and is also pulling their center of gaze. And if the agent believes this is the best explanation for its sensory world, then it will fulfill those predictions by tracking and also anticipating the location of the target and produces very, very realistic slow pursuit target movements. Realistic to the extent that you can um, simulate occlusion. So this is just a, a simulation here with a sinusoidal target here that goes behind an occluder here. And then we're looking at the beliefs of this simulated agent during the periods of occlusion denoted by the grey bars here. And in particular, what would happen if I changed the precision or the gain or the confidence or the, um, um, afforded the prediction errors? Would it make the sorts of mistakes that people with schizophrenia make? And indeed it does. Uh, and you can um, simulate both the psychophysics and also the, uh, the, um, 
the tracking of the target in the slope suit paradigm to emulate very, very precisely and um, in detail the sorts of slope suit deficits you get from a lesion of the sort of um, active inference um, formulation of how we sample our world. I don't want to talk about this is what I want to talk about in the, in the last couple of minutes. I want to talk about active inference and epistemic affordance. So I'm going to make the final move now, which is taking us to uh, a more abstract application of these ideas, where I'm going beyond just saying, uh, I have beliefs about the world, and I'm going to act upon the world to make those beliefs come true by, by minimizing my prediction error. I'm going to say that my generative model now entertains the consequences of acting in the future. And furthermore, I believe that I am the sort of creature that will act as if I have, uh, I am minimizing the free energy that will ensue or the prediction errors that will ensue if I did this or that. And I'm now going to select from one policy or another policy purely in the service of minimizing um, um, this free energy bound on surprisal. If I were talking to philosophers, what we're saying is basically, um, if I act, I must have beliefs about the consequences of action. So if I have posterior beliefs about action, I must have prior beliefs about action. And therefore it follows that, what are those prior beliefs? Well, if I am a self-evidencing creature, in other words, if I try to maximize my model evidence, therefore I believe I behave as if I am a self-evidencing creature, which technically means that I will select those actions that minimize expected surprise or self-information, i.e. free energy, consequent upon an action. So very briefly, what happens is that you set up a bunch of policies, actions like where to look next, and then you work out, technically using the posterior predictive density over the outcomes, if I did that, the free energy that you would have got. If you write that down, it actually transpires that it has um, very intimate relationships with a lot of extant approaches to planning and optimal control and, um, and economics. So the expected free energy has these two bits to it. It's expectation over posterior predictive density of the sensory outcomes. Here's the normal, here's the evidence bit, and here's a KL uh, divergence. So I'm going to demonstrate that basically in the context of just choosing where to look next. That's, that's basically my space of um, policies that I have to select from. So what I'm going to be doing is selecting the place to look next that, that, that max minimizes my expected free energy. What does that mean? It's basically minimizing expected surprise, which means minimizing uncertainty, which means maximizing information gain. Uh, reducing as much uncertainty as I can by selecting those epistemically rich sensory uh, or what I believe will be epistemically rich um, parts of the world that will reduce as much uncertainty as possible about, um, about what I think is causing it. And indeed, if you compute this sort of expected free energy, you can create salience maps. So we've actually referred to this expected free energy or an important component of it as uh, salience. It's also known as Bayesian surprise. And this um, was just making the point that you can actually go into this expected free energy um, expression and just focus in on various mixtures of its terms and pull out stuff which has been in the literature for decades. So if I ignore the um, pragmatic or the prior beliefs, my prior preferences, I have no preference about what I'm going to see, uh, then what is left is uh, what Etienne Baldi would call uh, Bayesian surprise, what Horace Barlow would call mutual information. So if I take preferences out of, out of the game, then I end up with basically an infamax or minimum redundancy um, 
um, principle, but it's still it's only part of the story. Um, uh, I can put the preferences back in, but I can retain uncertainty about the outcomes of action, and then I get risk-sensitive control that people in optimal control theory use, where they minimise the divergence between preferred sensations or outcomes and those that I predict under a particular outcome. So if you're an economist, this would also be risk-sensitive um, choice behaviour uh, in economics. And I can take the final sort of uncertainty out and I can actually just get back to expected utility theory or reinforcement learning. So I take all sorts of uncertainty off the table, both in terms of what will happen if I did that and my uncertainty about the state of the world, we get back to uh, good old-fashioned uh, reinforcement learning and expected utility theory. And this is the final slide that just shows you the solutions to this gradient flow with a particular generative model where it's just trying to resolve uncertainty about the causes of these sensations, these foveal samplings that you're seeing here under the hypothesis that it could be an upright face, a sideways face or an inverted face and how it's choosing by appeal to this expected free energy or salience map the best bits of the image to look at to resolve as much uncertainty as, as it can. So within a, a few moves, it's pretty certain it was an upright face and indeed it was an upright face. So I will conclude by giving the last word as always to Helmholtz, who basically said what I've just said, but said it in uh, one sentence. Um, Each movement we make by which we alter the, the appearance of objects should be thought of as an experiment designed to test whether we have understood correctly the invariant relations of the phenomena before us, that is, their existence in definite spatial relations. And with that, I just want to thank all the people uh, whose ideas I've been talking about, and of course, thank you for your attention. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Questions, yeah. Shall I choose? Or? Uh, what developments around the free energy principle are you most excited about right now, either with your science or without? Well, that's a, that's a, a nice, gentle question. Um, I, I'm not sure excitement is the word. Worry is more, um, and it's usually worry about um, the agenda of the people that I supervise. So at the moment, um, the, it seems to be taken towards natural language processing and natural language understanding. The, the, the people I work with, the cognitive neuroscientists interested in speech and noise and, and hearing and uh, recovery of language function following, following stroke. On the other side of the coin, uh, there are people who um, want to see if these ideas scale up in a, in a commercial setting, so they're going off trying to um, you know, get funding for startups and the like. So that, that agenda is really finding toy proofs of principle where you get these sorts of schemes outperforming deep learning and in, in, you know, in open, uh, open AI gym formats and the like. So that's, that's not exciting, but it's worrying. I think um, the, so I should also say a, a large number of my younger colleagues are, also come from ecology and ethology and theoretical biology. So they've taken these ideas and made them work in the context of eco-niche construction and mathematical modelling of sort of, not selection, but the sorts of um, processes that you'd see in new wave evolutionary psychology and you know where do cultures come in and how does this bootstrapping between the inside and the outside states where the outside states are other creatures like me 
get into the game of making the world much more predictable and learnable. So that, that's also very interesting. And I've mentioned already some people, um, Mike Levin at Tufts has taken these ideas and seeing if we can use them to explain uh, games and dances and uh, self-organization, active inference at the level of cells and whether that is an explanation for pattern formation in terms of morphogenesis and possibly in the context of neoplasia and cancer. So there are lots of uh, exciting applications, but I repeat, most of them are just worries as opposed to excitement, whether we can keep up or... It sounds like you're describing a certain personality type that a lot of researchers are under that, like, you know, you have to have a hypothesis, but I think there is place for free will or the born liver poor, as in, you know, yep. yellow submarine. Yes. Here's the liver. I have no idea what will happen if I put but am I poor liver poor? Yes. So where does the bone liver live in your... Oh, well, it, it lives center stage, yeah. So, um... This notion of epistemic affordance that you get from these simulations, where this is just about lever pulling, this is basically what would happen if I did if I did that. This, I think, is one of the most beautiful expressions of this imperative to reduce uncertainty. So remember, mathematically, um, free energy upper bound surprise, and expected surprise is uncertainty. It's entropy. So all that we are saying here is that we are things that act to minimize uncertainty. Now, one of the best ways to act to minimize uncertainty is to see what happened if I did that. So when you look at the posterior beliefs over the consequences of action, what would happen if I pulled that lever, that becomes incredibly attractive from the point, you know, in the jargon of uh, Gibsonian people and the, uh, the, the inactivist movement, it has epistemic affordance. So this Bayesian surprise or um, this, um, uh, some, this mutual information, if you're Horace Barlow, I think it's probably more easily understood as this, this intense epistemic affordance or attractiveness. So the yellow lever, or so the, the lever in the yellow submarine, if it has not been pulled before, all other things being equal, is the most, has the greatest affordance to, because it's novel. So when you rewrite this uh, Bayesian surprise, not in terms of posterior beliefs about states of the world, but posterior beliefs about contingencies, the parameters that generate states of the world, the consequences of action, that looks exactly like novelty. So that question, um, I think, is a great question on two levels. First of all, it allows me just to sort of de-technicalise the basic imperative that we're talking about. It's just about sampling salient stuff, uh, you know, novelty-seeking. But on another level, you're absolutely right as well, that you know, these imperatives um, do describe people, and in particular, scientists. You know, this is just the, you know, describing exactly what we do. All we spend our entire lives doing is generating hypotheses, carefully designing these experiments with epistemic affordance to disclose and reveal the most evidence that we can. And if we're good scientists, we make these good epistemic moves. And if we're not, we don't get funding and we, we, we confirm our own ideas or get ignored. Um, so really, this is, this is another way of dis, uh, articulating the, the notion of the, the brain as a scientist. Yeah, they're both subject to exactly the same, uh, the same, uh, the same notions. Uh, how does uh, reproduction have any epistemic importance? Um, 
That's a, a, a tricky question to answer in terms of normally I would have a simulation to show you how it works. Um, reproduction here is, is one way of, if you like, um, a particular class of having these itinerant attracting sets. So um, at one level, from the point of view of a species over a certain um, period of time before and after the speciation occurred to create that species, you can write down the trajectory of the species where each of those cycles I was pretending before was my daily life cycle or my heartbeat, that could actually be over at, a, at a, um, an evolutionary time scale. Uh, so you can look at that as, you know, um, that as revisiting certain states of being over somatic time, like being an embryo, being a your zygote, be, being an infant, and going through a neurodevelopmental cycle. So the key question there is, do the same mechanics apply um, at the level of evolution that must be in play if there is an attracting set that is a species? And that leads us into the game of now reinterpreting the price equation uh, or the replicator dynamics that are used to model evolution, um, not so much specifically in terms of reproduction, but certainly in terms of um, you know, evolutionary theory more, more generally, as basically um, a process of inference. Uh, and that's very interesting. Um, um, because there are a lot of, there's a lot of, um, mathematically the answer is yes, absolutely. And I think a chap called S. Frank has written about that, and John Campbell talking about universal Darwinism. It's a truism that the population dynamics that are used to model theoretical evolution are just Kalman filters. They are just variational free energy minimizing great gradient flows. The more interesting thing, I think, is the, the memes and the rhetoric you can put on top of that. So now, if that is true, it means that natural selection now becomes Bayesian model selection. And now beliefs become, or internal states now become phenotypes. So the phenotype now becomes, if you like, um, a statement of belief about what sorts of things are fit for purpose in this eco-niche. And the uh, Bayesian model sele selection now does the structure learning on the phenotype where you've actually got explicitly an ensemble density encoding the posterior belief. So evolution now becomes the scientist. So evolution now does its belief updating using a sample density over the phenotypes that constitute the population density. That conforms to exactly the same rules that I, the Fokker-Planck equation describes. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lovely game to be played in terms of theoretical biology, just unpacking the same maths that you might use to describe, uh, you know, the Schrodinger wave equation, but applying it to population dynamics and just seeing what you mean when you talk about natural selection and how that means you know, relates to things like structure learning in, say, natural language processing, for example. Mathematically, they all have the same form. That was a bit of a hand-wavy answer at the level of reproduction. Uh, reproduction is an interesting one because it implies a splitting of uh, the genotype. And, 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 you know, so that, that's, that, that, that I think requires some finer and more detailed analysis.